Hello and welcome to That HR Podcast from People Management. My name is Emily Burt. And I'm Lauren Brown. And we are here to explore all you need to know about this month in HR, including... We've all heard about gender pay gap, but are organisations falling behind on tackling their ethnicity pay gap? Can a behavioural policy really make a difference to harassment in the workplace? We meet someone who puts this into practice. And Tim Pointer is back with another listener query. How are you doing, Lauren? I'm all right. I'm slightly wet because it rained today. It's other than that, I'm good. Muggy. <laughs> Tell me about something fun you've done this week. I actually moved house yesterday, but when I arrived, it did look like a crime scene. Oh, no. So Blood you know, on the walls. Well, not quite. <laughs> it was, you know, restrained crime scene. Restrained. Also, a I'm petty on, crime I'm scene. I'm on the corner of, like, a really, really busy street, and I've got two beautiful tall windows, but I don't have any blinds or curtains. So last night was, like, me trying to get in my pyjamas, like, doing a kind of army crawl across the Great. floor. Great, good, So good. that no one could see me, so... I live in a crime scene and I can't even walk around. <laughs> I can't wait for your housewarming. Uh, yeah. We'll see if that happens. We'll see if that happens. But yeah, that was fun. <laughs> what about you? I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can tell this story. I'm going to just tell it anyway. <laughs> it's fine. Um, I've uh, just been working on a really big feature about uh, harassment in the workplace, which we're talking about in the podcast today, and you can you can read it online. Just plugging my stuff here. Just a plug. <laughs> which I've just been I've been pouring my kind of blood, sweat, and tears into this for about four weeks now, and I was feeling really good about it. And then on Friday, I spent an hour writing a story about someone who called their colleague a knob over workplace email, and it's now like one of the most popular ones on the website just give just the people what they want by din- which is swears yeah so I, I've just learned that if I'm if I'm going to be a prolific writer I just need to swear more There's been a lot of conversation this year about the gender pay gap. We've all seen lots of stories about it the reporting has been prolific but it's not the only pay inequality that exists in the workplace. The estimated ethnicity pay gap in the public sector is around 37%, while researchers found that black male graduates earn on average 17% less than white male graduates, the equivalent of £7,000 when working full-time. Joining us today are two experts who know a lot more than most on this topic. Suzanne Samedio works in diversity and inclusion at the Ministry of Justice, and Frank Douglas is the CEO of Carrie's Executive. He works with companies on talent and inclusion and is a noted commentator and social media presence in the world of HR. So welcome to you both. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So obviously the topic we're going to be tackling today is hugely complex, and to risk simplifying it, I'm just going to dive straight in and Mm -hmm. ask... How big is the race pay gap in the UK? Well, um, in in terms of a report that came out earlier this year, it showed that there was about a 37% pay gap within the public sector mm. Mm. amongst um, ethnic minority groups between white and other um, uh, minoritized ethnic groups. Within the civil service, that gap is small. Obviously, we're um, waiting for the requirements to actually publish that data, but we know that there is disparity. Mm. Um, But most of that is born about by differences in grade as opposed to anything more difficult than that. The extent of the gap is quite hard to determine because um, the private sector don't necessarily have a duty to correctly report their information. Just off the back of that, we've already mentioned the gap several times. But before we kind of proceed and ask more questions, in terms of terminology, Emily and I are obviously sat here as 
privileged individuals. White middle class white women. Middle class yeah, people. white let's just be right out. White let's middle class it. women. We're in yeah. Soho and we're recording a podcast. <laughs> so but you know, I said race pay gap there, mm-hmm. but also some articles say the ethnicity pay gap. Mm-hmm. In terms of terminology, in terms of feeling comfortable talking about these difficult topics for some people to talk about. How how do you think we should well, phrase Well, I, I think it is a, it is an ethnic pay gap. Ethnic pay gap. Um, ethnic pay gap. The, issue is, the issue is not to get caught so much on the statistical issue, but the issues that are behind Absolutely. the issue. So there's no mandatory requirement to report. But what, what is clear in, in companies I work with and companies I've worked in Um, is that if you were to ask the CEO to call a meeting of his or her top 100 leaders into a room, the business case is there right in that room Mm -hmm. in terms of lack of representation. Absolutely. The the, the ethnic pay gap is just a statistic that brings us back to why is there a gap. And Mm -hmm. that's a much deeper issue, which Mm -hmm. presumably we will talk about a little bit more today. We know that paying people differently for the same job is illegal. And often where there's a gender pay gap, it's come about because career progression stalls after pregnancy. But there isn't such an easy explanation for the ethnic pay gap. So what do you think are some of the causes? There are a number of different drivers for this. Obviously, we know that there's some things that feed into your trajectory in terms of your salary potential even before you enter into the workplace. So Mm -hmm. things around social mobility, health outcomes, etc. are known to have an impact on labour market inequalities. But then when you look and unpack research, whether it be from the Ruby McGregor-Smith race in the workplace or others, and there's lots of stuff already around that, that can actually point to other factors, whether it be the likelihood of certain groups to go into certain professions, as in the lack of strategic career advice from schooling right the way through people's careers through to much more challenging issues around uh, the need to embed greater fairness in the way in which we promote, attract, retain our talent. There's a plethora of issues there. It starts at the most basic levels is that race is not a comfortable topic. I'm 20 years out of the U.S. and in the U.S., race is kind of in the air. It's talked about, it's, you know, it's written about, it's just part of the normal conversation. It's a very uncomfortable topic in, in the UK. So so you start from the first point of view is that it's an uncomfortable talk, topic to tackle, lack of representation, there's a lack of a starting point. So every white male CEO knows a white female. And so they are used to having women in their professional orbit, and they're very used to having women in their personal orbit. Most white male CEOs don't know an ethnic minority. Yeah. So they are not used to having them in their professional orbit. And they clearly, if you wish, if they go to their home countries, wherever it may be, it's even less likely that they have them in their personal orbit. And so there's a distance. There's a lack of comfort. There's an issue of what I even start. And if I bring this closer to home to the profession, quite honestly, is that the human resource profession is an overwhelmingly white profession. What you are starting with now is a white C-suite take away maybe the head of DNI respectfully from the, the leadership team with a white HR leadership team, mm-hmm. 
where do we start with this issue? Yeah. It's complicated. It's difficult. We don't know what to call people. Do we, you know, we're walking on eggshells. So it, it starts even at that most basic personal level. There are quite a few who aren't at that point. What you seem to be saying is actually start with our kind of interpersonal relationships and try and build outwards rather than trying to tackle all of these yeah. ambiguous yes. things all at <laughs> yeah. once. I mean, companies are starting to talk about it, but in many cases they're not really addressing the core issues. So in, in many cases where companies have tried to address the BAME issue or even the gender issue, most companies are using what I call just off-the-shelf solutions. Mm. You know, so for every family-friendly company, there's an enhanced maternity-paternity leave. There's flexible working in, in professional services that might be a parallel career track. There might be reverse mentoring. And for every company that, you know, has launched a BME program, you know, there's reverse mentoring, there's an employee network, and, you know, there might be some targets. What they all fail to do is to address the issues that impact on progression and retention. Leadership, mindset, behaviors. It's around HR policies. It's around the norms and the unwritten rules of the organization. You could add all that up and call that culture. Most organizations are not addressing head on the culture of their organization, mm. the leadership behaviors of, 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 of their leaders, and therefore what are the lived experiences of their employees that impact their engagement, impact their ability to be progressed and, and retained. And those are the hard conversations very few companies are actually being bold enough to have that hard conversations. Do you think that there is an unwillingness among people at the tops of companies who are majority, you know, white male CEOs, but also, you know, throughout British organisations, an unwillingness to tackle the elements of institutional racism that I'm sure feed into this issue? Absolutely. So if I came to you as a sales director, as a CEO, and I said, I can increase your sales by, I can increase our sales by 15% of our competitors, or I can increase our sales by 35% of our competitors if I do B. What do you think 10 out of 10 CEOs are gonna ask me to do? Well, that's exactly what McKinsey said. McKinsey mm. said that if you crack the gender diversity issue, you're likely to outperform your competitors by 15%. If you crack the gender and ethnicity issue, you're, you're likely to outperform your competitors by 35%. Why aren't CEOs picking the 35% solution? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in line with that, there's the question of the authenticity. Now, I do find that often this is, these, these hackneyed phrases get embedded into various leadership conversations right. and often, at times, actually promoted amongst the very groups that you're trying to attract. Sometimes it's that main body, that board itself, that needs to be comfortable and talking about their own career journeys, the assumptions that they have actually unpacking some of the assumptions that they've come to just normalise within their own career mm. in terms of what it takes to make it, what does talent look like, and where do you go if you're looking for your next chief financial officer? All these uh, implicit assumptions, but they're unpacks the kind of implicit biases that they may have come to adopt to normalise throughout their career. Um, and that's important that they're willing to first start from that point of real honesty 
about their perceptions of what a good board looks like so then we can then build on it not doing that is going to be very hard to then build in and attract any other group because it becomes then quite tokenistic so at recruitment stage for example you know if you have a very british sounding last name you know studies have shown that you're more likely to get through to interview and you say that we need to tackle some of these unconscious biases that employers sometimes have there are obviously various solutions to this where you know name blind cvs various different practical solutions how do you suggest we kind of try and tackle something so unconscious in my experience there's very few of these things are unconscious mm. we, we politely let people off the hook <laughs> by right. saying it's unconscious yeah. and then you kind of say okay i didn't have anything to do with that most of these biases are very explicit if it's an Eastern accent or the Queen's language, that's not unconscious. We know exactly what we're gravitating towards. Yeah. And if we if we see a attractive blonde female candidate and maybe an ethnic minority male candidate from Pakistan, we know exactly what we're gravitating towards. So yeah. Yeah. The, the, the starting point is to address, as I said, head on those norms and, and practices of an organization. And so, you know, what Suzanne was speaking to is true, is that every organization has an archetype of their leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it might be white male, Oxford, Cambridge, lives in SW1 or, or whatever it may be. They, they have an archetype. Mm-hmm. If you're an ethnic minority person, you don't fit that archetype. Yeah. The blind CV is, is good. Not really, but that's another conversation. Yeah, right. <laughs> Absolutely. Because if, if I don't want you in my house and you blindfold me and bring, <laughs> and then you bring in me in and yeah. sit, sit you down to the dinner table, when I walk in to serve your food, believe me, <laughs> that's still, still going to be a be, problem. It's still yeah. not going to be Absolutely. a welcoming environment. So we have to tackle, and I hate to keep coming back to this, but you have to tackle the culture and the practices and the norms. And every organization needs to have a mirror shown to them in terms of this is the lived experience of your employees. I feel like the government is attempting to address this and they're certainly making noises about the fact that they want to address these issues in the workplace. But what are the complexities involved in getting this done? What are the kind of key challenges that we are likely to run up against? While you can do things to, um, often people look to government to kind of legislate around these things, I think that the business case, the research from the McKinsey report to McGregor has actually made the case clear as to why this is important. Hmm. A question that um, is around will and buying, and actually businesses actually feeling that it's rather than it's the government imposing something, that it's something that they want to do. And now where I've seen organisations be more progressive is where they absorb that business case, linking it in terms of their ability to reach their future customers, the whole globalisation kind of argument. One benchmark, which is where does the DNI function sit within the organisation? If you look at some of the US companies in the tech sector and in the financial services sector, you will find in many cases that the DNI function sits as a direct report to the CEO. In some cases, there is a global office of diversity and inclusion that reports to the CEO or is part of the office of the CEO. And many of the high-profile cases where the companies have a true commitment to DNI being a business imperative, you find it being reflected in the structure. Your structure reflects your strategy. When you then come to the UK, 
And if you would make that same comparison, you would find very, very, very few cases where DNI reports to the CEO. And what you will typically find is that it sits under HR, but then it sits under talent. And so it is actually three or four steps removed from the CEO. You know, let's not forget there was the Parker Review that spoke to representation of, of BAME um, executives at the board level. You know, 100 years since the 60, 1968 Race Relations Act that, you know, no Irish, no dogs, no blacks got outlawed. And we're still talking about what do we do? Yeah. Women have been in the workforce for 100 years, and we're still talking about the pay gap. Um, you mentioned gender pay gap again. Obviously, you know, the it's not necessarily as straightforward as male or female. People mm-hmm. are now, you know, identifying as gender non-binary and that kind of thing. But obviously, with the word ethnicity, that encaptures so much. What are the kind of additional hurdles will companies have to overcome when it comes to reporting? I think what we're speaking to here is the nature of the the conversations that we've had about race so far have tended to follow a certain pattern and use a a certain Mm. type of lexicon, shall Mm. we say. And uh, I think rather than the challenges, I think the opportunity within this area is to actually start going about changing that. Firstly, the discussion of ethnicity seeming to actually be attached to something that's negative. When talking about the experiences of people of African descent or Asian descent, sometimes within that, there's this discussion of, let's talk about difficulties and disadvantage. Mm. The state of the economy right now, Mm. the differences when looking at ethnic groups, we then see that there are areas where we see social mobility, we see Mm. different types Mm -hmm. of economic power coming out from different communities, but we also see the the, the sustaining of long-term issues that have not moved across time. Then again, also in talking about ethnicity, the concept of whiteness has also been challenged. Now we see the experience of, particularly with the Eastern European, different communities now saying that well, that their experience is quite different than white British, shall we say. And then even within the certain groups that now feel that they haven't really been given as much a voice at all. So whether it be the distinction between black of African and Caribbean or Southeast Asian groups, Chinese, etc., who have seen somewhat kind of lost, missing from the discussion. The opportunity is to make our discussions far more nuanced, far more strength-based and looking for the opportunities that come with understanding ethnicity and the also from within our own kind of profession, realising that uh, the kind of one-size-fits-all solution is not appropriate, and that's referring back to the kind of standard leadership programmes and positive action interventions. There is a um, term called code switching. In simple terms, ethnic minorities typically are dealing with two cultures. They're dealing with their heritage culture at home, and then they're dealing with a dominant culture when they come into the workplace. And so the language, the food... The behaviors they exhibit at home are altered when they walk through that door. And so there's a parallel processing that takes place in just about every ethnic minority in terms of how much of my heritage do I leave behind to fit into this dominant culture. And and so the term code switching is, is, is what it's been called. The issue is not how difficult it is for the organization. The issue is how difficult it is for the employee And the effort that every black, Asian, ethnic minority employee has to make every day 
with that code switching. The issue is, is that when you have employees putting that much effort into what they say, how they act, you know, it can also be in terms of the LGBT population. The more you reduce that code switching gap, you then start addressing all these other issues. If we focus on just one HR policy or practice in particular, if we talk, if we talk about leadership assessment, the leadership assessment archetype seems to feel more like an alpha male sort of type person, very extroverted, very self-promoting, very articulate, very sociable. So many of our practices are based on this archetype that doesn't fit. Some cultures may be more prone to gesticulating and speaking a little louder and, and being more more challenging in their conversation. I'm not talking about Americans, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, that may be perceived as aggressive, particularly in terms of, of, of black men and black females. It may be perceived as arrogant. We still have a framework and an archetype that is at its most basic underlying form is based on the white alpha male. Right. And so when we look at the HR policies of why we're not progressing, hmm. it's sometimes because the, the archetype you're holding us up to is the wrong one. So people tend to like gravitate towards people who resemble themselves in terms yes. of behaviours and in terms of attitudes and, and that sort of thing. And this is all part of the, the same problem. Yes, this whole lot of looks like me syndrome, right. sounds like me, is something that you see throughout the employee life cycle, throughout people's life experience. People need to be intentional about how they approach aspects of their outreach, recruitment, attraction, etc. Let's start unpacking who we're going to, why we're going to them, and actually intentionally going go out and seek out those places where we know those talent pools exist. Whether it be from a recruitment perspective or a marketing perspective, the issues around, you know, segmenting your audience, knowing who your customers are, it makes plain business sense. It's quite puzzling therefore to me sometimes when I see that not applied to recruitment. Similarly, organisations wanting to go, whether they call it their social mobility programme, etc., to be quite intentional in who they suggests goes into those schools, acts as role models to, you know, future leaders, really ensuring that that reflects the diversity of staff that they have within those organisations rather than going to the usual suspects. And I think that kind of reflects what Frank was saying about actually... People are hired on the basis of being really confident, like might have like a louder voice, might present themselves in a certain way. But actually jobs are, in a sense, self-selecting. Like you apply for jobs that you think, you know, you would work well in, that you'd get accepted for. But actually, like you say, it's actually on recruitment teams to try and broaden their reach and be more deliberate. Sometimes it's not even the recruitment team. It's just the nature of the practice. You know, if John, the CEO, which is a typical name of CEO, and mm. his pal David, the other CEO, is out golfing, and David says, John, by the way, my, my kid just graduated from Leeds, and he needs an internship. Can you, can you help him out? Yeah. He helps him out, and lo and behold, Charlie, six months later, is right. a permanent employee. Yeah. It's not just people who look like them and part of them. It's part of their orbit. It's tempting to always look for the quick solution. Mm. You know, <laughs> give us that one yeah. lever we can pull, Frank and Suzanne, that can make it all go <laughs> yeah. away. Yeah. And what we've spent the time telling you, that's why we haven't progressed. If you could offer any practical advice to HR professionals or DNI professionals in these organizations who want to try and start acting with intention and they want to try and start kind of changing these behaviours, what would you say to them? 
slow down on the top-down solutions. Go and ask your employees, what is it like working here? Ask them what they need and what they want and what their challenges are. I believe that many organisations do have data Hmm. that they can already use. So the challenge for our own profession is for the data that you have, use it. Often the data will point to parts of your uh, HR processes where there are opportunities to embed greater inclusion. Seize upon those opportunities and whether it be by seeking advice of DNI experts or whether just taking it on a strategic business issue, yeah. see, see ways to adjust those issues. So, for example, drop-offs during recruitment and selection, difficulties attracting certain groups onto a corporate development schemes rather than looking at the kind of the minutiae the quick fix Mm. and going out specifically to a group to be the solution actually see this as a business critical issue that you should be taking on as continuing improvement for your business and if that means having an uncomfortable conversation then frankly you need to just get on with it yeah right yeah i I think the conversation if i go back to the mckenzie point Ask every CEO why would you only want to outperform your competitors by 15% if you have the opportunity to outperform them by 35%. If your board asked you that question as a CEO, or even more importantly, if your shareholders asked you that question as a CEO, what's your answer? I would not want the HR profession to get off the hook because we as a profession are assumed to be the role models of the behaviors and the attitudes that we want the organization to exhibit. And the HR profession um, has very, very few senior BAME executives. I was the last black FTSE HR director, and I left the corporate world in 2010. So as a profession, we have to also hold a mirror up to ourselves and say what's happening here as a profession and why are we not able to role model and therefore have license? Mm. And that may be part of the problem why we also don't have that conversation because HR actually doesn't have license when you have the six heads of HR who are all white in a room talking to the CEO about race. Why why are we as a profession also not reflecting Mm. the society that we live in and, and, and serve? Frank, Suzanne, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Thank you. So Lauren, what are you really excited about this coming November? Well, I'm looking forward to going to the CIPD annual conference and exhibition for the first time. Oh, I'm very excited for you. I have been to ACE twice myself already and it returns this year, Manchester Central on the 7th and the 8th of November, where you can delve into a comprehensive conference programme that will empower you to deliver good work and great business in your organisation. It is the 71st year of the CIPD annual conference exhibition and it's going to be one of the biggest yet. So what have I got to look forward to? Well... (laughs) You can be inspired by over a hundred renowned thought leaders, practitioners and leading academics who are going to be offering the very latest thinking in HR, L&D and organisational development. There's going to too be... much to look forward to. Yep, we, you... can't, we can't say it quickly <laughs> enough. <laughs> 
Across five different content streams and a massive 38 different conference sessions, you can challenge the biggest issues facing the people profession in a constantly evolving world of work. And you can get access to unrivaled insights for you and your organisation. So to avoid missing out, book now and join 5,000 of your peers and me at the UK's biggest HR event this November at Manchester Central. More details are available on the CIPD website. So it's time now for our interview. This month, Emily went to the theatre to tread the boards and see what life is like in the dramatic arts. Well, I'm standing in the dress circle at the Royal Court Theatre and behind me you can hear the sounds of people dismantling a set so that they can get ready for a new production of Pity by Rory Malarkey. But this theatre is only able to function so effectively because it's tackled some of the systemic issues that have affected many of its peers, as well as organisations across a wealth of other sectors. It's ten months since the Me Too movement really kicked off, and in the latest issue of People Management, we explored the steps organisations are taking to deal with what happens next. And this month, I met one of the first people to implement practical steps for change in their workplace, in the hope that longer-term cultures of harassment will be changed for good. Vicky Featherstone is the Artistic Director at London's Royal Court Theatre. She's worked in the dramatic arts since 1990, more than 25 years, and has used these skills to create a new behavioural policy and a zero-tolerance attitude to harassment for her organisation. So, hi Vicky, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. It's an absolute pleasure, thank you for coming. So, hi Vicky, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. It's an absolute pleasure, thank you for coming. To kick off, could you just tell me, what exactly did the Me Too movement mean for your industry, and was it a shock to you when these allegations started to surface at the end of last year? I think when the allegations started to surface against specifically against Harvey Weinstein, the extent of it was a huge shock, but the fact that it existed wasn't. And that was the thing that made me think that we had to start asking the same questions of the theatre industry as they were asking now of film. You kind of heard these allegations, and then, as I understand it, you decided to take action on those. Can you tell me a little bit about that process? Yeah, well, the kind of the history of it goes that you know, the kind of allegations against Harvey Weinstein came out. And I really admired how quickly people came forward to create the hashtag MeToo. And within about three or four days of that happening, I walked into this office and I said, I feel I need to send a tweet about saying, you know, film is now asking questions of itself. When is theatre going to start doing the same thing? Has anybody got any suggestions? And I stood there ready to send in the office and I said to everyone, shall I go for it? And I just wanted a bit of kind of backup because, you know, once you kind of open the floodgates. So I sent it and it really shocked me, the response to my tweet. Yeah, I mean, I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of responses of people saying, you should do this, this should happen, this is my experience. And I came into an exec management meeting about five days later And I said, I feel I need to do something about this now because I sort of opened the floodgates by asking a question and you can't get all these responses and then just let that die off. You have to do something about it. So um, we decided that we had to come up with a course of action. So that's how the whole thing kind of began. And you then set up what I believe was called the day of action. Yeah. I mean, I called it no grey area because a lot of people that I'd been in conversation with would say, but the thing is, you know, we're creative people. There there are grey areas in the way that we work. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, but with an abuse of power, there isn't a grey area. People kind of exploit that sort of murky bit in between. And with the amazing team at the Royal Court, we came up with a sort of programme for a day, which was October the 28th, so really quickly, within like 10 days after the Harvey Weinstein allegations, where we invited people to the Royal Court and I asked people to send me testimonies of experiences that they'd had where they felt that they had been abused or harassed uh, within theatre, specifically it had to be about theatre. 
And we read them all out continuously for five and a half hours. And they were really shocking. And what came out, you realised there were patterns of behaviour within those five and a half hours and the things that you heard about. And that there were ways that people had kind of gone in to exploit weaknesses um, in order to gain what they wanted in terms Mm. of their power. And of course, for me, theatre is often a place of witness where you bear witness to a story. And then upstairs, we ran a series of sexual harassment workshops. We were only going to run one, but it kind of sold out really quickly. So we ended up doing six in a row for about... 250 people Um, and they were based on a sexual harassment workshop which we'd set up at the Royal Court a couple of years earlier which was about coming up with scenarios and finding out ways that we would stop those scenarios from happening in the future and that's where the code of behaviour came from in the end. And in the harassment um, article that I recently wrote for the latest edition of People Management, I talk about the behavioural policy that then developed out of this day of action. And it has things in there like, for example, um, it's never appropriate to go to a director or a producer's house to audition. Just drawing these lines about about spaces that are right and um, behaviours that are right and wrong. And also calling out things like bystander effect, which I think is very, very important in dealing with harassment at work. Since this policy was introduced what kind of a response have you seen have you been conscious of changes in the way people have worked or have people reported feeling different about the atmosphere so basically our code of behavior has now been taken up our elements have been taken up all over the world for us it was really important as well that we did it quickly as you know to come up with any kind of policy to find the wording and all those kind of things can go around the houses can often be a bit of an excuse it was very important to me that we got it out within a week of our day of action so as I say, it's been picked up all over the world but the thing I think that's really important about it in terms of change is that it breaks open the idea that this is all right mm. and that everybody knows, even if they're still committing it, that it's wrong. So it means that people don't feel that they are unable to come forward and talk to their peers and say that this is happening mm. and that people now have to make a decision if they still want to be harassed or kind of abuse somebody. They're ma- I believe they're now making a decision to do it, whereas I think in the past there was a situation where people just thought it was all right. Something I have seen a lot of with organisations is is people saying, you know, you just shouldn't form relationships at work. Netflix recently introduced a policy where they said, don't ask for phone numbers, don't flirt with each other, do all of this. And that's one way of dealing with things. But inevitably, people do form relationships, they do form romantic relationships at work. And I, I wonder, in theatre particularly, in an environment that is so intense and so immersive, I would imagine that there are lines in relationships that are going to be crossed mm-hmm. so how do you deal with those challenges mm-hmm. when when we were all sort of started to talk about these allegations at the end of last year I had a really brilliant conversation with my husband and my just 18 year old son and it was about intention and they both said I'm talking in a heterosexual situation they absolutely know when they are talking to a woman platonically but flirting yeah. or whether they are sexually attracted to them and there is an intention mm. Obviously, it's really important that human beings find ways to interact and that we kind of further the human race and we find all those glorious moments of people coming Mm -hmm. together. And yes, you're right. In theatre, I think that happens and you're looking for people who are like you and share the same tribe as you. But it is to do with intention. It's to do with an abuse of power. And it's nothing. It's not something which is stopping people from fancying each other, flirting (laughs) for six months, flirting at the Christmas party, getting off with each other and starting to go out with each other. It's that abuse of power and it's the way that power comes into these relationships that illustrates where those lines are drawn so if you could offer any practical organization or any practical information to organizations who are seeking to reform their own behavioral policies in the aftermath of this movement what would you say to them 
I think one of the things is about having living policies, not policies which are just kind of in a computer and written up. So the big thing for me, practically, was about us coming up with scenarios within our workplace and then unpacking those scenarios. So in a workshop situation, people saying, this thing happened to me at box office or this thing happened to me, Mm. and then us going, what would we put in place in order for that not to happen? And I think that's a very active thing because I think scenarios are really, really helpful for people to understand the levels of what those kind of abuses are. A policy really only allows for one thing at one time and then you work your way through it. But actually people's position changes because people have come to me and said, I felt that I've been harassed by so-and-so and I've said, do you want me to do anything about it? And they've said no. And then six months later they said, why did you let me say no when actually right. I was too scared? And One of the things that policy does is say, once you've told me that thing, then I take the responsibility. Are you feeling optimistic about the future of... I suppose the Me Too movement, but also broadly beyond beyond that movement itself. Are you feeling optimistic about the future? And, the, and the, do you think we're going to see these cultures improving? I think we're definitely at a place where it's better than it's ever been. I'm generally an optimistic person, but people are now coming to talk to me from other organisations saying this has actually made this situation worse and now what do we do? And people are scared and people are nervous for really kind of entrenched Mm. uh, uh, kind of abuses of power within organisations that people are protecting other people of now and they didn't used to protect them in the same way. So that makes me feel nervous. So oddly, the exposure of this, I think, is really positive. Of course it's really positive, but actually what it reveals is how much more work there is to do and that kind of opening of the doors was really only a beginning of something that we haven't actually worked out how to make change properly fundamentally happen so we've reached that tipping point fantastic vicky thank you so much for your time this afternoon thanks very much So please do welcome our agony uncle. He is the superman of strategic development. It's the founder of Starboard, Tim Pointer. No capes, not today. It's okay. it's uh, it's too warm here in Soho, everyone. <laughs> Cape-free zone. <laughs> so let's move on to this week's dilemma. Uh, we've got someone who has written into us saying, I am currently a senior HR business partner with over 10 years experience in HR, mostly in the financial sector, but I'm currently really struggling to secure a head of HR position. I keep getting the feedback that I'm just not a head of HR. How do you get experience unless someone takes a chance on you? I currently partner some very senior managers who sit on the UK branch of one of the largest banks in the world, and I'm working at a strategic level. I'm confident that I have both the breadth and the depth of experience to achieve on this, but it seems that my job title is blinding recruiters to my potential. I'd assume that I'm not the only one with this dilemma. So what advice can you give me? It's interesting to me the way this question is set out, Mm. because... I have so many questions, yeah. <laughs> so many questions, really firstly about the motivation of the individual. Yeah. What is it they're seeking to get from this role? Mm. What is it about that head of HR? And by the way, that means completely different things in so many different organisations right. anyway. What does that actually mean to this individual? Because it feels like they're looking for the next level of opportunity, but probably focused on the structure, the hierarchy and the job titles in their current employer. Yeah. But is it something deeper than that? Is it about wanting to have greater people management yeah. in their role? Is it about wanting to have broader accountability? So for more of the PL, for more of the international side of the business, for a different function than they've had a responsibility for previously. 
Is it about the level of influence that they're seeking to enjoy within their role? Is it about the cold, hard cash? Yeah. <laughs> so we've got to be really specific. What is it that you want from this? Yeah. It's really important to think about our network, yeah. both inside and outside the organisation in which we're working. And it's really important to think about the way that we're preparing for the next stage of our career. Mm. And this, I'll just refer to your copy of People Management for the yeah. current books that you could be exploring on that. But let's be specific about what we want. Let's look at the network that's going to help us to do it. And let's really focus on the achievements that we have yes. in terms of what we want to be doing tomorrow and beyond that. Because it's not just about going to the next level of our HR career. We are business people. Mm. Let's be really clear about the business achievements that we have enabled through our work. Let's lead with those. Let's be business leaders first yeah. with a really strong functional capability and expertise that then enables the results that in the projects and parts of the business that we're given accountability for. Like I say, I really want to get into a conversation with your emailer to explore all of these points, but be really clear about what you've done, be proud of those achievements, be able to tell, give those case studies, tell those stories, and then work forward so that you're having the conversation not about I want this level of job or this particular mm. job title, this is how I want my career to go forward to build on the success that I've already created. And I'll be starting those conversations with my current employer, saying, what can I achieve differently here? How would I get to work on that project or that part of the business? And broaden the sideways piece in order to get the step up. It's not a career ladder, it's a jungle gym. Yes, it's not linear. Like the way that you move your career, your career is not a linear thing. You know, we don't always go step up, step up, step up, step up. We go forwards, we go backwards, you know, up, down, shake it all around. It's not a one line trajectory. I'll interject here. I'm totally honest. I don't actually know what the difference is between a senior HR business partner and a head of HR. You know, these things and, and, and these terms, I talk to so many HR professionals and they all have lots of different titles and they all mean different things every time. So instead of making maybe focusing on the title, talk about what it is that you want, start to be clear about that. Maybe don't limit yourself to applying to head of HR positions because it might be that there are roles underneath other titles that are actually just what you're looking for. And I think the point about recruiters being blinded because of the job title, that suggests to me that there's an opportunity to work hard with those recruiters so they're clear as to what your business achievements are mm. so they can do a better job in putting you forward for the, for the roles and the opportunities that you want to be focused on. Yeah. Focus on those relationships. Look to see who is advertising and recruiting the type of roles that you really want to get to. Focus on those people, make that list, and to work really closely with them so they know what an outstanding candidate you are. You've got to do some work on yourself and the way that you're projecting your brand. You might want to do some talks at an industry event or a different HR networking event. You might want to get the video from that and then key that into your LinkedIn profile. All of these pieces come together. Just Google yourself. You know, mm. what does page one of Google say about you? What would you want it to say about you? You can affect that. You can change all the pieces that are there. Because that's how the person looking to recruit someone into their team, they're going to go, oh, I wonder what they've done. I want to hear them speak. I want to hear them present. I want to hear their passion, their industry knowledge, their business achievements, the way they really talk about getting stuff done around here. Mm. And my final point would probably be there are fewer senior roles out there. 
we cannot be in a situation where we're constantly talking about the numbers of mergers and acquisitions which are happening across all sectors and the fact that there are a number of organisations that are really struggling out there. And we could sit here any week in 2018 and talk about who has just gone into administration or who is in yeah. prepack or who has been sold for a pound or whatever the story of the week is. This means that there is constant disruption. And with that and Brexit, we are then in how do we react to this uncertainty? Well, it's fight, flight or freeze. Yeah. And many organisations will freeze, particularly when it comes to those senior roles. Mm-hmm. On top of the fact there's fewer of them around because of the merger, mergers and acquisitions making a small number of organisations in the first place. Getting that really strong breadth in our careers positions us in the best possible way for when those opportunities do come up. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tim. If you have a question for the next edition of Tim's Pointers, you can head over to our website or email us in confidence at pmeditorial at haymarket.com. If you have a question for the next edition of Tim's Pointers, head over to our website or email us in confidence at pmeditorial at haymarket.com. And that's it from this edition of that HR podcast. Thanks to Suzanne Semedo, Frank P. Douglas, Vicky Featherstone, and of course, Tim Pointer. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, and of course, on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. Feel free to rate us and leave your nicest comments. My name is Emily Burt. And I'm Lauren Brown. The producers were Matt Hill and Chica Ayres at Rethink Audio.